Right, we are good to go. So, Cody, appreciate you jumping on with us uh, or me today. How are things your end? All good? Hey, Michael. Really good here, mate. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. No problem at all. And um, yeah, obviously, we, we touch base via social media, as as everyone does nowadays. It seems the best form of contact and whatnot. But I guess what's probably interested me um, is is some of your posts around, I guess, leadership, coaching, um, etc., which which has been really, really insightful for me on a personal level. And hopefully over the hour of this conversation will be insightful for the people listening. But for people that maybe haven't come across you, do you want to give, I guess, a bit of a whistle stop tour of, of who you are and um yeah what you do from a day-to-day basis yeah sure uh, you'll be able to tell maybe from my accent i'm from uh, australia uh, i'm from melbourne uh, so if anyone's been to melbourne you'll know that afl or aussie rules is a religion there and so i uh, played uh, came up through that pathway uh, in melbourne i actually got into coaching really early i was I was just thinking about this recently, actually, I, I started coaching at high school. I was 18 coaching uh, grade nine and 10, but uh, started to do it properly when I was uh, 25 and uh, eventually made my way over to Canada and ended up coaching the national program here. So the national men's program for about a decade. Uh, so yeah, long time coach, despite the fact that well, you can see, Michael, but my beard doesn't join up yet, but I, I've got 15, 15 years of coaching under my belt before my 40th birthday. And uh, um, yeah, more recently been working directly with head coaches. So I, I've written a couple of books and had a podcast of my own and it's really opened some doors for me to uh, do some uh, some work with other head coaches and uh, so that's what I've been sinking myself into over the last uh, two to three years it's been working directly with with other head coaches so yeah very fortunate to have carved out a little uh, yeah well a long time with coaching already yeah, listen, I'd rather have a beard that don't fully grow than the grey that I've got. So you, you're one-upping me there already. Um, we won't mention the ashes either, because that would be a very sore spot for, for, for me and my English listeners. But in terms of uh, Aussie rules and AFL, etc., what was it that drew you into that sport initially? Um, was there anything that particularly resonated with you? And I guess the question off the back of that is, what then drew you into the coaching side of it more so than the playing side? Well, I didn't share part of the story. Part of the story was I was, I was actually born in Canberra. Um, and so rugby league was my first sport because that was all that was in town. And um, Canberra's still obsessed with rugby league, as most of New South Wales is. Uh, and so I hadn't actually seen Aussie rules until I got to Melbourne. I think I'd seen one game on television. But what really captured me was... I think the speed and the ability to do so many different things in terms of, you know, when you're a kid and you you want to kick and run and jump and tackle and kind of all these things. And there's all of these things in, in the same game and you get to do all of them, right? It's not pos- position specific. So I think that's what really captured my imagination. And then uh, as I got older and started to get into the kind of elite pathway, I think the thing that, I struggled with the most was I was an overthinker. So I thought too much 
and it turns out that that's actually an advantage in coaching. And so uh, I had a coach, I think, recognize that in me when I was quite young and suggest that I start coaching. And so, uh, yeah, the, the, the kind of uh, where everyone should be running and how to synchronize and how to get on the same page and think the same and all those kind of things were interesting to me as a player. And so the ability to actually jump in and, and try to uh, coordinate those things for teams was, was really captivating. So I'm glad he made that suggestion because if he, he hadn't, I, I might not have started coaching uh, or started coaching properly and professionally, but um yeah, so it was actually my my Achilles heel as a player was the thing that I think has benefited me as a coach. Yeah, I'm a firm believer, I think, of those uh, overthinkers or the people that make the most out of, um, in, in my case, I guess, limited ability, but being able to understand the game, which then gives you the ability to probably cope with people that are slightly beyond your level, I think actually helps when you then go into coaching and whatnot because you have a more under a greater depth of understanding of what everyone's role in a team needs to be or how you know the jigsaw bits all go together. Um, I guess for you, when you're when you're in your younger ages, how do you go around developing? I guess the art of coaching. You're relatively young. You've got this overthinking personality, which is I guess a a strength in terms of analyzing the game and how you want to play. But how do you um, begin uh, interacting with uh, the players and understanding how to relate to them and get your messages across in the right way. What does that look like for you at that point? I mean, I think when you start doing it, you're really mimicking what you think is good coaching. And so that might be from what you experienced. So, you know, I, I was very much, you know, from the hairdryer treatment era of, uh, of sport and so, you know, certainly a lot of it was was very like coach driven, very, um, you know, quarter time and three quarter time addresses were, you know, they were always aggressive and and things like that, and it was very kind of motivational. And and I think everyone really starts there. You have to mimic something, right? You you have to kind of go in with some sort of framework, and the only framework you can build for yourself is is what you've experienced or what you've you've seen, and so. Then once you get into it, you can start to see whether it resonates or not. Or and so yeah, early on I was very much regurgitating what I had experienced, and uh, that works for a certain amount of time. I think because you believe it, but I think uh, particularly as you as you get older and you experience more things. And for me, it was you you travel. Right, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I thought I was a good coach when you know, when I was 25 and uh, was working with, I was really lucky. The The players that I worked with in under 15s, we ended up with, I think, three or four top 10 draft picks out of that group uh, into the AFL. So I, was, I started with the best of the best. But then when you travel, one, it teaches you a lot about yourself as a person and uh, you kind of have to have a bit of a reckoning with yourself in terms of how you're going to interact in this new environment that you don't understand. But then also 
here in Canada, we had rules that it's not an expat league. It's not just full of Aussies. You have to coach the Canadians. And then with the national team, it was all Canadian-born players. And so you've got to teach a game to someone who has been elite at something else. You know, our guys were often NCAA uh, or U sports, the Canadian version of college sports, you know, uh, volleyballers, soccer players, rugby players, hockey players. And we were teaching them a new sport at, you know, 22, 25. You better know how to coach and you better not just have this hairdryer treatment uh, that worked with the Aussies because they knew how to react to it. Uh, now you actually have to go and coach and teach and have empathy and patience. And, and so it was kind of tra- Traveling that taught me more about coaching than anything else. And is there one particular scenario that stands out to you to where either you've made a massive mistake and you look back now going, mm, that was a, you know, a real learning curve or equally the other way, a real positive uh, experience during that time when you're trying to find your feet, where you go, actually, that is like a real light bulb moment where I realized that a different type of interaction is is suitable and gets the same, if not better, outcomes. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I look back and I'm embarrassed by my old coaching, as as I think most people probably are. <laughs> um, it's like looking at photos of yourself from ten years ago. Like, what was I wearing that for? Like, why did I? <laughs> why did I think that hairstyle? Why? <laughs> um, but that shows development, right? Like that shows uh, maturing. Um, and so, uh, yeah, look, I, I don't think there's one moment necessarily where I caught myself in terms of negative. Um, uh, I, I was doing what I thought was appropriate at the time and and maybe it was. That's the other part of it too. But uh, probably the light bulb for me was uh, working with the national team where you know, you start to dig into, um, you know, again, like we've got now players that are uh, only Canadian born. And so they're not raised on the game. They're not raised on the skills. And at their club level, they often have the choice to give the ball to an Australian player who's grown up with the game and, you know, they can kick the ball and make mistakes and things like that. And if Canadians make mistakes, they kind of get you know yelled at and, and so what that bred was a lot of fear in that a lot of the players didn't want to kick the ball. And so they would make decisions that would uh, would maybe not be the best for the team, but would help them not have to dispose of the ball because they didn't want to make a mistake. And so it was a really interesting thread for me to realize that um, it wasn't through lack of capability it was that they were fearful to to kick the ball. Um, they they could do it, but they didn't want to because they didn't want to make a mistake. And that was a real light bulb for me in that you start to get into the the psyche and the mindset of someone who will opt not to do a particular skill purely because they don't want the feeling of of having made a mistake. And how how do you remove that from them? In um you know, in a, uh, particularly in a big team, you know, we have 18 on the field and four to six on the bench. And so 24, and so they're in front of their mates. So how, how do you start to remove that for them? So that regardless of how their kick goes, right choice, or whether it spins properly or whatever, that they, they want to go again and do it again. 
because we have no other choice. We have to have our guys kick the ball. There's no Aussies on the field at the national team, so they can't give it to someone who can kick better. They all have to do it. And so that was probably my my first real go into the psychology of it all rather than just the pure, like, blunt, um, like, let's get motivated and if we go harder at the ball, we'll win. And, you know, that was quite uh, quite elementary stuff, whereas now when you're dealing with fear and removing fear and its impact on skills and skill execution and uh, team culture, now you're starting to get to some real deep craft. And is there any particular strategies you did use or you do use for newcomers into your environment to help them remove that fear? Because as you said, that's something that would be common across a variety of sports. You can watch top level sports now and, you know, a hundred million pound player that for their previous club was dribbling past everyone now just turns back and gives it to someone else or the new new sign-in or the youth team player that comes in is, you know, just doesn't play their natural game. So is there any particular strategies that you use to assist people going, listen, these are our expectations here. And one of them is if you fail, that's fine. Like we need you to try and execute the skill rather than focusing on the, the outcome all the time. Yeah, certainly. I mean, football is a great example for this. So, I mean, it's, it's highly nuanced, right. But, um, you know, you, you look at football and, if someone doesn't pass, you know, maybe to the star player, you know, the hands go up or they're like demonstrative, like, like, uh, you know, they, they point to their feet, like you should have passed it to me. And I look at that and say, that's exactly what I was dealing with. That's what a lot of these players were, were growing up with in, in Aussie rules was like, you, you know, you should have passed it to me. And I think immediately that starts to cripple that player from, one, their kind of natural skill set. Um, they, they, yeah, they don't want to next time, or they're going to make a worse decision because they're just going to pass blindly to the star player because they were demonstrative towards them in their body language after the mistake. Uh, and so that is really the crucial piece, I think, in terms of it's not about working harder on their actual skill, it's about creating a culture and a language and a, a celebration of. Um, people that take risks and so one example that we use that my club team that I was also coaching we just started this thing called be the man and be the man was you take the kick you take the risk when you have the ball you're the, the master of everything and so I don't want you to just give it to someone because uh, they're an Australian or they're better or whatever I want you to take the shot at goal I want you to and it it kind of grew this this culture within our team uh, that allowed players to start to have some confidence. And, you know, we want you to be the man. We When you've got the ball, we want you to do it because we love you and we respect you and we want you to enjoy playing the game. And so, yeah, again, we can, we can hyper-focus on individuals and trying to upskill individuals, but the reality is most behavior is derived from the group. And so you, you, you can work on, dribbling and passing and all these kind of things but it's not going to take away the fear i really like that narrative that you can paint as well and you know that that can be a you know a season long couple of season long thread around you know what being the man means and actually how do you take that mantle on board 
you can begin to move that off the pitch as well. I'd imagine you you know you can talk about your, your behaviours and execution on it, but then it's like what does be the man off the pitch look like in, in terms of leadership or how we conduct ourselves. So I think that's a really nice story that you can almost tell the group, which I'd imagine really engaging. I'm going to steal that was for my mm-hmm. some of the kids because I, I was actually talking to one of them yesterday about feel like they hold back a little bit on 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 the way they are and kind of go you're capable but I'm just gonna let someone else do it it's like no I want you to be that player so that's one that I'll probably still probably say um yeah go for it. what one thing obviously we you sent me some material before I did a little bit of research and stuff as well and one thing that really interests me on, on your website in particular you mentioned around um wanting to I guess be the youngest coach to work in the AFL um and kind of that that ambition etc um from i guess someone who didn't play professional afl etc how did you find that battle uh because I, I know from speaking to some other people they find it some find it really easy some find it more challenging when you have to stand up in front of people that might have been ex-professionals or might have had coaching from a X player here or X player there, and then you're there and you haven't been those things. How did you find that in terms of with your journey? Was that something that you were really comfortable with in terms of not having that experience and having gained elsewhere? Or was that something that you felt like you had a little bit of like imposter syndrome with? Yeah, I mean, my sport's funny in that pretty much you have to have played 200 games to get a coaching gig, whether it's head coach or assistant coach. And so I'm exactly 200 games from that um, in that I played zero. Uh, But I think the other way to look at it is really having uh, confidence in your coaching ability and that you've got something to offer regardless of uh, whether you have uh, the playing background. And I think that comes really with developing a strength of character, which I think a lot of coaches probably don't work on or focus on because we're so into like tech and tack and understanding that. And um, But I think the other element is really the human element, which is where I spend a lot of my time now. And so, you know, uh, there are some great examples in world sport that point to the fact that a, a playing career at that level has absolutely zero to do with your ability to coach. And if I just rattle some names off the top of my head, Bill Belichick would be one. I uh, didn't even play division one college. Um, I reckon he's a pretty good coach. Don't you? I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's, uh, I don't know. I've lost count of su- the amount of Super Bowls. Um, Greg Popovich would be another one. I don't know if you've heard of him. I think he's won some, some basketball titles somewhere along the line. Uh, Joe Madden, um, don't know if you've heard of him. He's won some Major League Baseball. <laughs> right. uh, John Cooper is the current. Uh, he's won three, I think, in the NHL. So you can go down the list of the big four sports in North America and basically the, the preeminent head coach never played professionally and barely played at a, at a college level that would hold much esteem. And so, um, you know, even within football, I mean, some of the – some of the up and coming guys, right? There's there's a decent amount of them now. Nagelsmann would be one that you would point to. Um, 
that didn't play professionally. And so I think there's a sense of confidence that you can get from that in that there are plenty of examples of uh, not needing, but but having a, a strong uh, ability to coach and connect and everything. And then if you compare that with a sense of belief in yourself, because you do have something to offer, um, I think all of a sudden now you've got a relatively compelling case that you don't need to have played 200 games. Yeah, I was just looking up there. Have you read the book Education of a Coach about Bill Belichick? I have not, no. Okay, so you'll you'll really like it. I recommend it. It's Education of a Coach by David Halberstam. Um, and he goes into the life story of Bill Belichick and talks about his dad and um, how his dad was brought up and subsequently how Bill was brought up, etc. So that would definitely be one for you if... if um, if you're interested in that. And yeah, I'm actually a San Antonio Spurs fan. So on the Greg Brockovich front, I know his work really well, but I think it's a, yeah, I think it's a really nice point that you make. And I guess the, 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 there seems to be more of a push around getting um, academic or people that haven't necessarily been professionals in the sport into the sport because they derive a different skill set, etc. I guess the challenge for you is how do you challenge that in your sport so if there's such a culture of having former players, and I'll be honest, soccer's the same. There seems to be a push mainly of ex-pros that go in as coaching staff or come in as under-21s or 23s, when actually they've only had a couple of years' experience where you might have had someone else who you know, has been coaching for the last 18 years and has built an identity and a craft and a knowledge base. How do you go around challenging individuals from that? Because I can imagine in the long term, you would love to be able to maybe go back to Oz and coach a Collingwood or someone like that. So how do you go around challenging that so that those opportunities might be uh, possible? Yeah, I've, to be honest with you, I've kind of given up on that. I'm not interested in changing the culture that way. I think more recently working one-on-one with coaches has been how I've decided, I guess, to try to change the landscape. And so Part of that, I think, is in working with some of the coaches who haven't played, and and I actually do have a couple that I work with that are at the the top level that didn't play, and so I think through them succeeding, it just continues to add to the uh, the narrative that maybe it's not as required. Um, and again, it, it's also not to say that having played 200 games hasn't qualified you and and had you around the game for a long time um uh, that there's there's a lot of value in that too um but uh yeah so I, I i'm not interested in changing the the landscape on on that front other than helping those coaches succeed um because how good is that that you you don't get the leg up and you don't get, you know, fast tracked into the A license or whatever it may be. And you still, despite all of that, rise to the top and succeed. I think that's that's how things start to change is you just continually see more and more and more and more. And it becomes a bit of a groundswell. I think, I think this is a really nice segue point for us. So let's discuss the work that you currently do with head coaches then. So um, what, what type of work? do you do with them and how did you get into that space? What, um, yeah, what, what drew you towards doing that type of work with them? By accident. 
And, you know, a couple of years ago, I was happily coaching my team. Um, I had been with them for a long time. It was my, you know, I was in the perfect, perfect landscape, had a great, great president uh, who supported me no end uh was my culture i designed the jerseys so i could look however i wanted to look it was i was on the the perfect path as a coach had everything that you could possibly want um uh, had a circumstance where we had one of our, one of our players take his own life uh, and then a couple of months after that covid hit so i wrote a book called the tough stuff which was about um the the emotional toll of coaching and people started messaging me after reading that to ask if I could work with them directly on some of the things written in the book. And so it wasn't by design. I had no real, uh, other than my own personal experience and some thoughts that I had put out there uh, and now have ended up doing that professionally full-time. I work with head coaches and so, uh, Really, I, I look at it as coaching performance. So when you look at the coach as a performer, which is not how we traditionally look at them, right? We we look at them as kind of a resource and, you know, squeeze the most out of them as humanly possible and expect that you're going to get good results, right? And so there's this idea of like chronic individualism, you know, like uh, hard work, 20 hour days is what's going to win it. Like watching 10 games of analysis and, you know, and it's kind of this, we've looked at them almost the the opposite as we look at players. And so my work really now is to look at what is a coaching performance? What, what requirements do they have? And and what I mean by that is not at the tech and tack level, because to be honest, you can run whatever you want, like, you know, um, whatever tactical system, great. But what a tech, what a coaching performance requires is things like awareness and attentional capacity and uh, clarity of communication and pattern recognition and, uh, your ability to decide and decide under fatigue and your ability to, uh, um, uh, you know, remain calm. And so when you start to look at those human qualities and you start to try to find ways to heighten those for coaches with the idea that a better coaching performance emerges off the back of that, now you're starting to get some traction. And so that's what I spend my time doing is really looking at you know how coaches are sleeping and uh you know if there's if they're struggling to implement a a new technique or a new tactical system or a game plan you know and it's not coming off it it, it could be like how they're sleeping maybe they're not communicating it clearly because they haven't slept and so instead of kind of dealing at this you know i think everyone does a pretty good job of the the tech and tack stuff a lot of coaches don't need work there. What they need help with is teaching and awareness and communication and decision-making and like real human elements. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to the book stuff later because I think it's fascinating on some of the points that you make in that. Just linking to what you said there, how do you get people to have a self-awareness of what they are good at or what they're not so good at or things that might be affecting their practice? 
Um, because I can imagine that you obviously have a only have so many hours in the day, and you have multiple clients or multiple coaches you're going to be working with. So how do you get them to be able to one self assess, but then two self regulate? Because that's ultimately where the goal is, right? Where they are able to catch themselves exhibiting maybe unbe- uh, unhelpful behaviors that's going to stop them having the optimal performance for their group. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, guiding their awareness is part of it. Like having having conversations around, uh, you know, and almost taking them through a journey of, of what their behavior has been or the way that they've reacted or what they actually felt or, you know, you looked this way, but but did you, did you like, how did you feel? Um, those are really helpful conversations. And uh again you can only get so much in a like in a zoom call for an hour really that the nuts and bolts is actually getting out there and observing for yourself like me observing them um uh, and so it's really pairing those two things together is going and visiting and spending prolonged amount of time with them and being able to reflect quickly and give feedback quickly um but also yeah the, the ability to kind of guide someone through their own experience and have them think about it I think is really powerful for coaches and uh, you know because they'll, they'll often tell you things like I knew that that didn't work but I was committed to it or you know there's all sorts of nuances to coaching like uh, if you've ever been a head coach and you've stood up there in the lecture theater in front of everyone and you know that they're not listening and that's what you're thinking about as you're trying to deliver this speech that you've that you've spent days preparing. Now the whole ball game has changed, right? Or you catch someone's eyes and they're either into it or not into it. And so it, even kind of going through that process of like what what caught your eye? What what were you thinking about? Were you in the the presentation or were you reacting to the the audience or um, little? things like that to really go through the experience with them, help you get to a point where you can say, okay, there's something to work on there. There's something to fix immediately there. Um, And so, you know, you can do that with literally anything a coach can do, running a coaching meeting, running a training session, running an analysis meeting, having a staff meeting, speaking to the owner, speaking to the board. You can go through all of that with them. Talk to me about the experience, how you were feeling through that. And uh, that gives you your development points off the back of that. And how do you remove, the, I guess, their level of subjectivity? So I, I can imagine that, let's say it's a coach going to an owner because they want more money for a player. They're going to walk into that meeting and maybe it's been a negative outcome. They might come out of it to you and go, He's being really unreasonable. Like he's not listened to any of the points that I've made, and um, I just think that it's being out of line. I don't know how I'm gonna work with the group that I've got. Blah 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 blah. blah. How do you get them to, I guess, be a bit more, um, a bit more focused on? Okay, well, what was maybe the owner owner feeling at that point, or is there a different angle that you could approach this via? How do you get that? Um, yeah, self reflection that removes the emotion from the event and actually allows them to drill down into the 
information that is necessary to help progress whatever that uh, next step is. Yeah, this is why being there helps in that you can actually see those dynamics, right? So sitting in the in the back of the lecture theatre and being able to see the coach present and, and actually spend time there helps with that. And so that that would be the, the optimum level. But if you're talking about just, uh, you know, self-reflection, subjectivity there is you can also flip it around the other way and say, okay, well, why was the, why was the chairman right to not understand or not take on what you were talking about? Now, all of a sudden, it's a different question. So now you've taken it completely away from me and my, my thought that I just gave the best presentation on whatever it is I, and say, why was the other person right? Now having a completely different conversation and you've got to reflect on yourself objectively. I could have done this differently or I could have, I don't know if I nailed that. And so again, it's, it's just a small little uh, uh, change in lens that now I've got to consider the other person's perspective and now I've got to reflect on myself and now I've got to say, uh, I could have done this better. Okay, great, right? And so, and often people know this, but you've got to actually, this is why conversations are more helpful than self-reflection is you can actually drag this out of people and they already know the answers. I could have nailed this point better or I could have said this differently. And so, being able to have those conversations and and have them speak it out loud rather than in their heads, I think often helps with that uh, removal of, you're not going to remove all subjectivity. Um, you know, we're not doing it in a lab. These are real life people that come with subjectivity built in. However, yeah, little ways of flipping things around and seeing from different perspectives can often help to get to some way for you to be able to progress or some sort of point to develop. And do you think, I imagine uh, from researching, you work with quite a number of sports uh, across a, you know, a few different few different areas. And I imagine you'll have some knowledge in some of the sports, maybe not extensive knowledge in others. Do you think that actually helps to allow you to focus on the actual delivery method or the communication style or the questioning that was present rather than maybe your eyes or your ears getting dragged to a technique that you might not th- feels right if it was like AFL or something like that. You might go, well, that was a technical point that was wrong because you maybe don't understand the actual content they're delivering. It allows you to focus on more on the method rather than the detail of the techniques or tactics yeah that that's a really astute question (laughs) and yeah you're precisely right michael like i I see my uh, my area of interest and and research is in the head coaching position in team invasion sports and so that's a very particular position within a group of sports and so um, the reason for that is, uh, yeah, the head coaching position has particular needs that other coaching positions don't have, right? And there are there are things that that position deals with that the others don't and don't have access to and don't have input into and don't have to consider. And then secondarily, 
team invasion sports as as I perceive them are all the same. So on the veneer, you know, soccer and Aussie rules are different, but that's a veneer. They're they're sports of uh, two teams trying to manipulate the space and time uh, of the opposition to get closer to goal to score. And so that's the same with basketball. It's the same with ice hockey. It's the same with netball. It's the same with uh, field hockey. It's the same with, you know, you go down the list. And so when you think about it that way, yeah, I think there's huge benefit in someone like me being able to uh, not have to focus specifically on uh, what's current in, you know, uh, football or rugby or whatever and just deal with, well, this is what the head coach needs to be in this situation in any team sport. And then also, is there something in one of the other games that might be relevant here that you can actually innovate with? Uh, because I just had a conversation with, you know, whatever a coach from a different sport and they were dealing with this exact same situation and here's how they thought about it. Uh, does that help you at all? Uh, that makes complete sense. And something that I see quite a lot in American sports and is beginning to happen more in football is the transition from assistant coaches to becoming head coaches. I think in American sports, you, you know, they talk about the Bill Belichick coaching tree or you've got uh, Sean McVay from the Rams that has similarly where these people have come up as their coordinators then, oh, sorry, yeah, they might be positional coach then coordinators and then they go somewhere else and it branches out, branches out. From your experience uh, working with head coaches and being in a position to research that that role in particular, what can people do to best prepare themselves for when they become a head coach? So if there's someone listening now who is an assistant coach or someone who aspires to be a head coach down the line, what type of uh, things could they prepare themselves with now so that when they become a head coach, they're in a better position to succeed? Yeah, this is something I'm really passionate about. I think our pathways and how we think about our pathways need to change. Uh, the answer to your question is I think more coaches should experience being a head coach at any level rather than following the traditional, I've got to be an assistant for 20 years and then I'm going to be able to comprehend what a head coach goes through. I don't think that's reality. And I think there's enough, maybe even just anecdotal feedback from coaches that they still get into the, the big chair and sit back on the first day and go, oh shit, I didn't realize that was part of what I had to do or part of the way that it was going to go or and so if you've if if we've built a whole system and then after 20 years in that system you you're still unprepared um or still didn't know that there was particular things that re were required in the role let's have another system um yeah not to say you're ever going to know right like there's the phrase that i use is the, the only way to learn to be the president of the united states is to be the president of the united states <laughs> And it's a little bit the same with head coaching, but I still think we can do a better job of of like the feeling of of being in the the seat. And so, what I would say would be in the sports where it's possible to be a head coach at a quote unquote lower level, I think we should try to 
push more coaches into that um, because the the pressures can be very similar, right? The the pressures of dealing with uh, with parents. There's a lot of similarities with like the outside criticism of the media, and um, and so there's a lot of similarities, even if it's at a different level, that can help prepare coaches a little bit better, I believe. Um, for the realities of it because what we do at the moment yeah assistant coaches are shielded from a lot yeah it's an interesting point because i think that um how often do you see uh programs in the states or clubs at the top level drop down a division or two to find a coach that um maybe has had success at league one or league two in england um to then give them an opportunity or do they end up recycling the same managers round and round and round or someone who's had success in a different country from what it sounds like you're saying there is that actually if there's a D3 coach who's having a lot of success in a program and it exhibits the values that you think you'd want as a D1 school, they've probably learned a lot of the skills that are going to be transferable anyway, because, you know, they're going to be dealing with, multiple uh alumni dealing with you know the president of the school dealing with social events of having to fundraise dealing with the actual players in the locker room and just because they're coaching at a lower level doesn't mean that their technical tactical ability is actually any less just means at that moment in time that was a good fit for them and that school so if they exhibit behaviors that you'd want in your organization it's probably a good place to go and look yeah, and you know, it's not to say that it's you know a hundred percent all the time, but I think it would be advantageous for the reasons that you named, right? Like the the the, the running of a program and the yeah understanding what it is to speak to the chairman or the president or you know the boosters in in college sports and and things like that. It's uh, that's a, a huge part of the role or even just the organizational dynamics of understanding how to help all the departments work together, even within the, the, the sporting program, right? Now we're talking about uh, you're literally running an organization. You know, it's not the old world where like, you know, Fergie has one assistant and a physio or a doctor and that's it. And there doesn't need to be any organizational dynamics. You're talking about departments and departments needing to work together. So it that's that's the kind of thing that an assistant coach, whilst they observe, they they never really have to do. Then all of a sudden they go, oh yeah, by the way, you've now got 50 staff who are also going to come to you when they need something on top of the 50 players that you've got. And you've got to help all these departments work together whilst also um, having this vision, whilst also, you know, the chairman wants results whilst, you know, all of a sudden you're like, where does the, where's the football bit come in? Oh, I thought I was here to be a football coach. No, you're here to run an organization. And that's what I mean in that, that the role now of the head coach or the manager is actually quite different. And so the, the skills that are required of that have become quite different quite fast. And so there are different pathways that can help prepare coaches better um, rather than just sending them on another course about, you know, whether whether 
it's popular to run overlapping wing backs because Chris Wilder did it, right? Like, or over the center back, overlapping center backs, he did, didn't he? <laughs> yes. But no, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, there's, there's only so many techniques that you can actually teach in football, but the management of people is probably what separates the, the good managers or good owners or good directors of football from those who aren't so good. And I think that's across sport. Um, linking on to your, your books now, so you mentioned that you, you've written two books, you've got the tough stuff and, and where others won't. The reason I made this transition now is that you've got one of, I guess, my former bosses in there, if you want to call that, Ralph Kruger, um, who I, I had many a presentation from. And w- what I will say is a hugely infectious character. When you're ever around Ralph, you came out energised from from his meetings, from his talks and the passion that he had. And he was mainly an ice hockey uh, connoisseur. And then obviously came and did some work at Southampton Football Club chairman. I guess from your perspective, if you want to give a bit of an oversight of both books and what they entailed, um, and then also just around some of the people that you'd had an opportunity to interview and discuss with. I mean, there's some unbelievable names on it, really. So just be really interested to hear about some of those stories and what you learned from those individuals. Yeah, gladly. I mean... Ralph is a great place to start with where others won't. It's a book about people innovation and uh, building organizations around your people. And uh, it kind of came from, you know, I was doing some work in corporate and looking at how they were trying to build teams and also a national coach and building my own program and uh, kind of looking at the differences and similarities. And I noticed that, businesses at the time tend to focus on, you know, products and um, they didn't really care about people so much. And in sport, we were like, well, people's all you've got. And so there's ways to innovate around your people and their strengths. And the, the perfect example of that was, was Ralph. And, you know, I contacted him. I actually just sent an email to the front desk at Southampton and said, Hey, uh, I want to interview the chairman and here's why and they got back to me and said yeah call this number at this time and i ended up having a conversation with him and but my my line of inquiry for ralph was well how does a a hockey coach go and just become the chairman of a premier league team like that's a that's a huge thing and and his answer was i still coach every day same same things that I was doing with my players in Switzerland or the Edmonton Oilers or the same questions that I was asking or the same way of, of trying to motivate people or thinking about people or, um, you know, he saw himself as still being a coach. His title had changed. Uh, he was the chairman. But, you know, and so that that kind of idea, I think, probably encapsulates where others won't as a book is like, how do you build uh, around people? How do you utilize and optimize your people so that you've got a sustainable source of competitive advantage? And yeah. so that's what that yeah, book go is about. Carry on, so go. Uh, and then the the tough stuff is maybe the maybe the exact opposite. It's a it's about the emotional toll of head coaching. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really around things like uh, identity and uh, criticism, and you know, you being maybe your biggest competitor, so your own mindset and how you think, um, but also your biggest opportunity for improvement. 
and you know some really uh, really deep human stuff like sense of belonging and um so yeah very different but what i've tried to do with my books is write things that don't exist or are overlooked i see them as being overlooked and so uh that's the theme that i'm working on the 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 trilogy now so the the third one's about to come out uh maybe october middle of october this year and is about coaching coaches and it's the same kind of idea i, I see a huge gap in uh in, in the marketplace and a gap in the thinking and so what I've tried to do is plug those holes and not just write books that other people have written in a different way, but actually write things that are quite vastly different. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. And again, I'm looking at um, on your site here and you mentioned kind of seven recognizable points from everyone thinks you're an idiot um, to you're not a coach, you're a person who coaches, which is a really nice distinction. So I think that, yeah, for people that obviously that haven't read, definitely worth going and having a look through because I think it produces some really interesting content around you know individuals and who they are and when they coach. Um, in terms of having spoken to all the all these people from a variety of different sports, is there anything that stood out to you um, as to why they'd become so high achieving within their? respective fields was there any common threads that you thought yeah that's something that i can kind of say that most of these high achieving individuals will have along their journey or within their personality or within their toolkit yes um you know i i think certainly the people that really stay at the human level and the the understanding of you know human behavior and why why certain things happen, I think, tends to uh, succeed across generations, right? Like they're not tied to a particular tactical philosophy, for instance, which can age out, right? Like you could be, you could come up with the most brilliant tactical innovation, but if you can't, if the game catches up and you can't innovate through it, then your level of success is is diminished, right? And so that's maybe one of the the catchings of of being a tactical coach is the game is always changing whilst you're changing and so you could come up with the most brilliant thing but it's too early or it's too late or uh, you, you just implemented at the end of uh, an era and maybe players are physically capable of doing things now which is kind of what we're, we're seeing right it used to be stupid to press because you'd uh, you'd spend all the energy of your striker and they didn't have enough energy to make runs Right. But then uh, the physicality of it caught up where you can basically have players <laughs> running all the time. So, you know, it's, those are just uh, both physical and, and tactical uh, things. But the people that spend their time at learning about human beings seem to be able to continue through even those tactical innovations um and not be married to them as much and uh, again what that tends to lead to is maybe like someone like a bill belichick where you look at his tactical style and it basically changes every year because it's just built around the individuals that he has and what they're great at and he just builds a whole game plan around those and then um because the players change the tactical style changes He's done that for roughly 20 years and you forget that 
he's actually a defensive coach by trade uh, because the Patriots are not known for their defensive ability through a lot of their winning. Uh, so what that says is someone that is tied to the human beings and setting them up for success rather than someone that's tied to a particular way of playing the game. And I think that holds true for most of the successes that I've seen, even people that have moved into leadership, like Ralph, for instance, going into being a chairman is still seeing themselves as a coach and being tied to the greatness of the human beings that are in front of you. Um, you know, I think has, has garnered well for him as well. So uh, yeah, I would say that that was it, is that there's a real belief in whoever's in this room is awesome and I'm going to do my darndest to set them up for success, whatever it is that they're great at. Perfect. Really nice way to finish. i got one last question for you, which is if I were to um, ask the coaches you worked with to describe you in three words, how would you hope they would describe you and why? <laughs> Um, I would hope that uh, that they would describe me as uh, empathetic uh, in that I think they come to me with challenges that they've gone through and what I try to do is because I've often gone through them as well I kind of shrug my shoulders and go yeah it happens uh, and it's, it's not that big of a deal Um it's just part of the role. And so I would hope empathetic. I would hope thoughtful in that, uh, you know, I, I try to be thoughtful and not flippant and not just come up with solutions, but actually think about um, what might help them as an individual. Uh, and I would also help, uh, I would also hope that um, they would come away with belief. And I think it's probably one thing that, a lot of people maybe don't have someone that really genuinely believes in them. And when you show that to someone, uh, it can be emboldening. And often it's that emboldening that particularly coaches need. They often have self-doubt. And so when someone comes along and says, you should try that thing, like I think, I think that's going to work. It's going to be great and you're going to be great doing it. Um, I would hope that they would get off the phone every week from me and say, oh, I've got a fresh lease of life on this. I'm going to go and do that thing. And um, often it's that that belief that then transfers and they can actually go and do the thing. And it's their belief in themselves and that thing that helps it come off. And so belief can go a long way. And so, yeah, empathy, thoughtful, and and uh, I don't know what the, the, the right word in that theme is, but believing in people, believing in the people that I work with, I would hope that they would say that. Perfect. Listen, Cody, really appreciate your time. I think a great conversation into, into a variety of coaching areas. Um, and we'll make sure that when the new book comes out, we give it a plug. So we'll stay in contact and we can send it out. And obviously for those people listening, hopefully uh, you might get a few more readers on your previous books yet, but really appreciate your time and catch you again soon. Thanks for having me, Michael.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.